Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We have another on the road edition today, the 7th, and we're super excited to be with Dan Kinzer, who I've known for quite a while and who happens to be on a very long walk around the island of Oahu, which is why we reeled him in on the last day of the walk to talk about his experiences. So Dan Kinzer, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here. So Dan, I typically start with... Um, getting to your bio so that everybody who's listening today, locally, nationally, globally, um, understands who you are. So where did you grow up? I grew up mostly in Southern California. I was born in Santa Monica in Los Angeles and spent most of my first 18 years there. And you, where did you go to school? I graduated from Harvard Westlake School uh, in Los Angeles, but grew up in public schools in El Segundo, uh, which is right near the airport, LAX airport. What were those experiences like at those schools back in Los Angeles back many, many years ago? Yeah, that was, uh, was a long time ago, but it, um, you know, they're a lot like, I think, kids' experiences in schools today in some ways. You know, I grew up in uh, a pretty, what would have been considered a high-performing public schools and had great teachers. I remember really enjoying school. Uh, I remember being really curious and being supported to learn in all kinds of different ways. But I also remember that I was part of various you know, programs, special programs that allowed me to learn based on my own learning style. And that school never actually seemed to occupy that much of my time. I remember being done with school in early or mid-afternoon and then having a lot of opportunity to explore and play with friends and do all kinds of activities that were more centered around my interests. So... What's, what's one example of one of those programs that you remember those many years ago that, that engaged you? I remember um, I got to do a really cool program, um, localized space camp program, where I was really invited to sort of try to think like an astronaut in training. And I remember that being really fascinating to me. Um, I remember getting to do uh, a really neat exercise. It was supposed to be a math camp, but we were building a roller coaster. And I don't remember the math really that I learned, but I remember having so much fun with a few of my friends um, building a roller coaster. Um, I spent a lot of time at the beach and in the ocean. I spent a lot of time out in nature um, through various various camps and after school programs. So getting out of the city um, in Los Angeles was a big part of growing up for me and I think super important. So after your K-12 experience as a student, where'd you go from there? I headed off to Nashville, Tennessee um, for some pretty significant wow. culture shock. That is, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to the University of Iowa, so I get I get how that works. Yeah, yes, it was pretty different. Iowa. Yeah. yeah, I was at Vanderbilt University and studying, uh, ended up studying neuroscience and psychology and really enjoyed my time there. I went there um, to play basketball, but the, the basketball only lasted a little over a season. Um, but I really did end up enjoying my time in Tennessee and stayed there for four years to finish my undergraduate. And your undergraduate degree was in? In psychology with a concentration in neuroscience. Mm, wow. Why the concentration in neuroscience? That seems like a out-of-the-box uh, uh, quest on your part. You know, it really, um, it really came down to a couple of iconic professors who were at Vanderbilt and kind of breaking ground in new neuroscience research, um, sort of functional magnetic resonance imaging. The fMRI technology had just come out and um, we were doing these really interesting brain scans and brain imaging. And that stuff really compelled me. I think the complexity of the brain and just trying to understand, um, you know, how humans were working uh, at a somewhat of a technical level, uh, was super fascinating. So I studied it out of pure interest. I think I also thought, you know, early in my undergrad career, I was pre-med along with like 40% of the other students <laughs> at Vanderbilt. Um, so I thought, oh, this is going to be good training for medical school, um, which I ended up deciding not to pursue. But I really enjoyed the, the time studying neuroscience. And at that time, it wasn't an established concentration or major yet at Vanderbilt. So they really, one of the reasons I think I enjoyed it is that they kind of let me build it while I was, while I was doing it. And so I was one of the, part of a first cohort of students who was, ended up creating what's now kind of a neuroscience major uh, and focus wow. at Vanderbilt. Super interesting. I remember back when I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, um, I was teaching a, some sort of contemporary issues class. And when that whole notion of the fMRI showed up on people's radar screens, I remember understanding that this was a significant moment. And we 
um, you know, sort of dove deep into some ethical, moral situations involving fMRI. And uh, it's always really neat when you can get the kids right on the edge of something like that that's just emerging. Oh, yeah. As a, as a young college student, right, it was, uh, it was fascinating to feel like I was playing in science fiction and sort of learning at the edge of being able to look into people's brains while they were working. And um, that was really, really compelling. And I think uh, it's become sort of a, a big, a sort of pivotal moment in my thinking about education you know, before that moment I you know I didn't really think about diving into learning and psychology and behavior that deeply but um, being allowed to sort of play at that cutting edge um, space was yeah it was just really exciting for me and you had a sense at that point that your work in in the cognitive sciences was going to inform your life going forward I definitely I didn't know exactly how, but I definitely had that feeling. So I, I really have always felt drawn to neuroscience and the brain since studying it. Um, and when I decided not to go to medical school, I was at a little bit of a loss. Oh, that's I thought I was preparing for this future that ended up not being the right path for me. Um, but my work in education has really been sort of a long, a long walk back into this sort of understanding of the brain and learning and, and neuroscience. Right. So we're going to jump forward a little bit here to the Jump Foundation. So um, that's part of your resume that I uh, did some reading about um, prior to today. So talk to us about the Jump Foundation and what that was about for you. Yeah, great. So I was teaching in a small American school in Taiwan when I went to a Global Issues Network conference uh, in Indonesia with a group of students, small group of students, and met a gentleman named Justin Bedard. And he's the executive director and founder, co-founder of the Jump Foundation. And um, we just really hit it off talking about experiential learning and global citizenship and place-based education. We both had roots in outdoor education and how we could bring some of those lessons from outdoor experiential education into classrooms and schools. And we decided to start imagining what a new school could look like. So I ended up moving to Bangkok, Thailand, and helping open Jump's headquarters there, Jump Foundation's headquarters there, and got to work on experiential learning programs, global citizenship, community building programs, sustainability-focused programs with international schools and local schools all across Asia and some other parts of the world, including Middle East and Africa. So it was a really special few years for me where I got to see so much of the world, was learning all the time, meeting educators from all around the world, um, from many different cultures, working with young people from across the world, and really asking some of the big questions that were facing education at that time. So um, the foundation is still running and doing outstanding work, um, still mostly focused in Asia, but, but does do work around the world. And yeah, I look back on that time, a lot of fond memories, a lot of great sort of outdoor week without walls type trips with students, a lot of great leadership work with school leaders and administrators and designing curriculum that was really place-based and experiential. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been also really foundational to my work as an educator. So I'm really curious because oftentimes when you talk to educators or groups of educators, the stereotype that they have of education in Asia is one of the Asian kid who has buckled down towards a particular test and that their testing culture is very intense and that, that the way to rise in the world is to succeed on these tests. Um, and yet... I've also heard from other educators, most notably somebody I interviewed just recently, Robert Landau, who's the head of school at Maui Preparatory Academy, who's done extensive work in, in Asia, that some of the, the real hotbeds of experiential education are in Asia. So is that your sense? And if, if that's true, then why do you think that's the case? You know, I think that uh, I think that there's a lot happening in Asia, both within the international school community and the local national school systems around experiential learning, project based learning, um, innovation in education. I, I agree with Robert, Robert's assessment. I think that's happening because they recognize that there is a deep need within their own communities and cultures for this revitalization of creativity and innovation and, and allowing more question asking and, and that, you know, just acquiring knowledge is no longer enough, um, that we really have to learn how to apply it and apply it ethically and apply it in lots of new contexts. And so I think, um, you know, in, in Asia, I think it's becoming a little bit more apparent that that's going to be the direction we're moving in in the future. 
um, to those cultures and to some of their decision makers. So it's, I definitely was amazed by the innovative educational programs that I found while I was working in Asia. I learned so much from what was happening over there. Seems like there's some recognition that the critical problems of the world that need to be solved or the critical problems of Asia that need to be solved are going to have to be solved by communities working together, starting with kids at a very young age and not via traditional models of top-down solutions that come down to the people down below. Absolutely. The sort of team-based, community-based, sort of problem-focused uh, learning environments are are becoming uh, increasingly common and, and much richer. A lot of different iterations and like methods of doing that across all the different schools I worked with and countries I worked in in Asia, but it was really... Um, really exciting time for me. I was in Asia for just about seven years, not as long as Robert, but about seven years and was having my mind blown on a pretty regular basis by what was going on. And they still, they definitely, definitely still battle with a traditional education system in the same ways that, that we are um, in Hawaii and in the United States and other places in the world, trying to figure out, you know, what's the right balance and what's, what are the right priorities. So I don't want to pretend like it's everything's magical that's happening in other places. It's a, it's a struggle there as well. But Right. So, um, Dan, talk to us a little bit about Planet Walk, which is one of the really important things that uh, shows up when anybody does a Google search of Dan Kinzer, Planet Walk is going to show up. Oh, wow. Uh, Planet Walk is, and my engagement with Dr. John Francis, the Planet Walker, has been, um, I really consider him a dear friend and um, an inspiring and important teacher in my life. Um, and so my work with Planet Walk, I think, has really shaped a lot of my thinking, not only about education, but just about how to live, how to live well and in context and in whole community. So I invited John um, to come to China. I met him, I met John Francis uh, via his TED talk uh, that he gave in 2008. And when it went live online, I watched it. And John spent 17 years not speaking uh, while he was walking across North America and the length of South America uh, on this incredible journey. And uh, I met him via his TED Talk and I shot him an email because I wanted him to connect with my students. At that time, I was teaching at a small international school in the Caribbean on the island of Curacao. And we were doing a project on silence. And so I said, oh, well, let's see if we can get John to Skype in and you know, Skype in education, Skype classrooms was kind You're of a new a idea. Project on silence yeah. with students. <laughs> yeah, the students had to give, actually give a presentation at the end of that project in silence. It was really compelling. Um, they did some amazing work and that'd be fun. I could probably talk for an hour just on that project. But that relationship with John ended up sparking when I was in China, this idea that why don't why don't we bring John over here to do this walk with, with students, to do this sort of week or two week long journey. And at that time, originally I thought, oh, we'll do it in silence. And when I told John about the idea, he said, Dan, that's such a dumb idea. Why would we ask all these high schoolers to be silent for two weeks? Um, and so we ended up modifying it. And some of the students did decide to stay silent, some for a day, some for an hour, some for a week. Um, but we did these planet walk journeys um, across Zhejiang province in China, where I was uh, teaching at that time. And it was a really profound experience. We did it four times in three years and walked a total of about 400 miles. And it was amazing to see the transformation that was happening in myself and my, fam my growing family at the time. My kids were both born in Asia. Um, my wife was with me and we'd go on these journeys with John and students and our understanding of our context, of our environment, of our place and our relationships to all of these places was transformed wow. within a week. Wow. So when you talk about walking in silence, does that mean, does that mean just that you're not speaking or you're not, are you still listening though? Yeah. I mean, of course you're listening to what's happening around you, but you, you're not listening to a podcast or, or, or a TED talk or anything like that. You're, you're, this is a powerful observational moment or a moment of great observation. Yeah. I think in, in, um, in the sort of tradition of planet walk, you know, John's 17 years of his journey were done without him speaking, but actually he talks about the forgotten half of communication, that, that listening aspect and, um, how we often practice our speaking skills and our writing skills and how we can express what's in our head. But we dedicate very little time to cultivating the practice and the power of listening. Um, and so 
You know, I don't, um, I certainly spoke a lot along this recent walk that I did around Oahu and, and um, I think conversations are important, but it is a, it is a really powerful thing to sort of dedicate your intention and your attention to just listening, just to paying attention, kilo, right? In Hawaiian, we might say kilo, um, just deep observation of the environment, including the other people around you. And uh, you learn so much. It's amazing the things that you can learn when you do that. So if people want to know more, they could definitely go start with the TED Talk. That sounds like a good place to find out what he was thinking after this epic event where he had been walking for such a long time in silence. Absolutely. Yeah, Highly cool. recommend. So from Planet Walk, then we're going to jump forward to your time at the Luke Center for Public Service at Punahou School. So can you talk a little bit about the founding of the Luke Center? What was it about? Um, and what was your role when you came on board? Like, What was the direction of the center at the point that you came on board? Oh, that was a great question. So, yeah, it was a privilege, a real privilege to have spent the last few years as the director of the Luke Center for Public Service at Punahou School. Um, its founding dates back about 15 years um, when then President Jim Scott, who recently retired, um, really saw an opportunity to place public service and service learning at the heart of the Punahou learning experience. And um, a lot of us here in the community will remember Jim talking about um, the desire for Punahou to be a private school with a public purpose um, and, and know of programs like the Pueo program and things like that. And so the Luke Center was sort of, you know, it, it was a, a derivative of that conversation and it was intentionally placed at the at the heart or Pico, one of the Picos of campus right near the spring, um, as a reminder that, um, you know, it's kind of our moral heart and it was meant to sort of provide a, a direction that we're here to serve. Um, my time there, so I started, came in, you know, 13 years into that journey um, as an incoming director. Um, I was uh, filling big shoes of a, a woman named Carrie Morgan, right. um, who had done great work there at Punahou School for a long time. And uh, really, we were starting to shift our attention to what we'll call social entrepreneurship or social enterprise, uh, sort of more creative or innovative approach to um, engaging in social issues in the community. So looking beyond just getting community service hours or doing community service projects, even linking the, beyond just linking those to curriculum and really inviting the students' creativity into the conversation and, and really invite their entrepreneurial spirit to orient them around how do we not just offer what we might think of as kind of band-aid solutions to problems in our community, but how can we engage young people in really digging into root causes? Um, I was able to bring a lot of the work I'm interested in in systems thinking uh, into uh, the Luke Center and also some of the work I do in biomimicry, so innovation inspired by nature um, and focus on sustainability, uh, connect with the sustainable development goals and things like that. Um, th that was a big that was a big focus um, while I was there and I think continues to be um, since I left. Yeah. I'm super fascinated by the, the fact, it seems like to me, that over the last maybe three to four years, um, entrepreneurship is, as a, as a word, as a concept, as, as a set of actions, as an understanding of who people might be right there in their very core has really sort of jumped out now into the education sphere so much so that sometimes I worry that the social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship in education is becoming a little bit of a buzzword already. Um, so why the shift in that direction and what was it that you guys were talking about at the Luke Center that caused you to want to center on this potential upwelling of entrepreneurial spirit in the kids? Yeah, I think a lot of it, it's a really great question and you're, you're, um, giving some attention to some really important issues in regards to what entrepreneurship education and entrepreneurship is going to mean in education. Um, I think what we've seen is this really strong interest in project-based learning. We've seen uh, deep interest in experiential learning. And we've also have been having this conversation for a long time in education about agency and student voice and the importance of creativity as a really powerful skill and effective communication as a really important skill in 21st century um, collaboration which seems to be kind of fundamental to to entrepreneurship um, as a key skill that we that we see young people need i think that we've always needed those things mm. um, i think the the fact that it is becoming a bit of a buzzword um, 
is something we need to give more attention to uh, because I think there's a deeper issue. I think that those conversations about engaging in authentic projects and interacting with your whole community and being relevant and orienting yourself in place, these are really, really important issues that we need to be placing kids in those contexts. Mm -hmm. And we're calling it entrepreneurship and then developing curriculum around that without necessarily building the relationships and identifying those patterns that exist in our community that mean we're all making our own path. We're all creating new opportunities and new value in our community. It's not a category or a label, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that we all are. Um, and when we say it's, you know, are you an entrepreneur or not? We're, we're saying some people belong and some people don't. And I really think there's, you know, we want to focus our attention on an, engaging that talent and that vision and that creativity um, in all members of our community. And mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's been something that was definitely part of the conversation while I was there and, and that I was really interested in not running an entrepreneurship program. In fact, we we sometimes moved away from that word to other kind of buzz buzzword type of things like change makers or things like that. But how can we um, how can we really invite everyone into that conversation to sort of see the ways that they add value and bring unique perspective to all the different challenges and, and opportunities, possibilities that we have? Seems like we need to have a conversation along the way because this is not going away. It's actually going to be and it's a good thing because you've got kids involved in in, in, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective and, and getting engaged and in their learning in ways that we really want them to be engaged. But at the same time, where's the moral, ethical, spiritual conversation that goes along with that? Is your entrepreneurship um, directed towards the community, towards making the community a better place or making you a lot of money, right? That's, yeah. Um, yeah. It's that, a big question. The values that underlie the, the word entrepreneurship, I think, should be questioned and, and should be a part of the conversation. Even if you're going to call your program an entrepreneurship program, um, how can we make sure that it's uh, it's coming from this sort of ethical source and that people are, are talking about really what's best for whole community? Right. So, Dan, along the way, um, you have engaged with the National Geographic Society as a teacher fellow. Um, I, I just, I'm going to preface this by saying, oh boy, when I was growing up, that stack of National Geographics that my dad had, and there were hundreds of them in, in shelves everywhere in the bathroom, that they, National Geographic was like a window into something that I couldn't quite get to, but I could see it in the pages of the magazine. So I have a very special place in my heart for that as a kid growing up. So how did you get involved with National Geographic and, and what work have you done with them? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and I, I'll say that I have the same experience. No one ever gets rid of their National Geographic magazine. <laughs> that little yellow rectangle has been an emblem in so many people's homes. Um, and I remember growing up with that. And so when the opportunity came to work with them, um, I was kind of equally sort of starstruck and really excited. Um, and it has been really transformative in my life. Um, it began actually with my work with Planet Walk. So John Francis is a National Geographic explorer, and he was one of their first education fellows um, in sort of their budding education department uh, several years ago. And it was just through a series of conversations when I moved to Hawaii, John told me about this fellowship opportunity you could apply for with National Geographic called the Grosvenor Teacher Fellowship and said I should apply. He said, oh, it'd be right up your alley. It's just like the kinds of things you like to do. I think, I think you'd be a great candidate. And so I did it. I filled out the application and I didn't really think too much about it at the time other than that's yeah, going to be a long shot. You know, I'm probably not going to get it. You have to be a resident in the United States. You have to be teaching in the United States. So when I was living in Asia and China, I wasn't eligible. So I applied. Um, and when I got the call, um, I think it was in January of 2018, uh, I got the call to say, you know, Daniel, we've reviewed your application. We want to let you know we've selected you as a Grosvenor Teacher Fellow. Um, are you going to be able to go on assignment to Antarctica? <laughs> and wow. I said, you know, immediately my heart's kind of racing and my mind starts spinning because, oh my gosh, that sounds so amazing. Um, but it really, it, I did end up going to Antarctica last December on a two-week expedition with National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions. And um, it was a really transformative moment, but for all kinds of reasons that I didn't anticipate. 
um, being part of this National Geographic Explorer community that's working around the world to bring to light all of these interesting questions and issues and places um, has been such a rich platform for my own professional learning and personal learning um, that it's it's pushed me out the door in a lot of ways, literally and metaphorically, to just say, you've got to go further. You've got to go out and push. We've got to do more. And then the expedition to Antarctica just brought out a real sense of urgency. And strangely, for obvious reasons, connection to climate change and environmental well-being and things like that. But also because of this strange connection that was growing to Hawaii while I was on expedition in Antarctica. And I really felt like I was connecting to the ocean and connecting to place in a way that I wanted to connect to our home here on Oahu. And um, that became really powerful, something that I couldn't avoid. It became a you know, a, a driving force to say, I, I got to get away from my computer. I've got to get away. From, I've got to get out and I've got to see this island and know this place and, and be thankful for it, really explore its sort of generosity and abundance and, and do that through science and culture and art and all the different ways that so many of us love to explore the world, but have such a hard time finding time to do mm. um, and really experience the wholeness of Hawaii which to have to go to some frozen desert at the end of the earth to sort of come back to appreciate that maybe isn't that surprising, but it was now looking back, but it was really surprising at the time. And so I do a lot of work with them now, including developing curriculum and supporting with their education communications and reviewing grant proposals and things like that that come in, helping facilitate um, community building within our educator and explorer network um, for National Geographic. And uh, yeah, they're continually that network and the organization continually inspires me to just keep pushing further and, and really embrace that sense of urgency and that sense of we can do this together. We can find a, a path forward towards a towards a brighter future. Yeah. I think what really strikes me in this moment, Dan, is that if I were a a well self-aware kid in school, um, let's say middle school or high school, if I was really thinking on my feet, I'd be thinking, wow, I really want my teachers to have had the kinds of experiences that you've had, that you've described in, in the last half hour. And I'm just, I'm just thinking how rich the classroom environment is going to be when you come from these different types of experiences. Mm. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, it's difficult. Like not every teacher can go to Antarctica. Not every teacher can go on a planet walk, but what can we do to enrich the experiences of educators so that they are coming to the classroom with a sense of that there's a big wide world out there and lots of things that you can be involved in? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I think that one of the things that we have to do is start looking outside of those classrooms, right? We, we often, I think the thing that it's pushed me to do is say, I, I can't actually limit my students' perspective to just what's in these four walls. Um, it really, Oahu, without having to go to Antarctica or travel around the world, you know, there are so many opportunities on this island. We'll talk a little bit about that as we explore the walk, but there's so many opportunities right here at home to see that big wide world in ways that we're currently not, you know, and, and I think we can, I think we have enough community partners. We have enough amazing educators. We have enough here on Oahu um, that could occupy all of us for a long time. Um, you know, it seems like one of the prime examples of that is something that you, a decision that you made to be involved in uh, Malama Honua, the worldwide voyage of the Hokulea which is a voyaging canoe um, and which falls under the auspices of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. What a profound experience that, that must have been. <laughs> Absolutely. To, to be on the deck of Hokulea um, or Hikianalia, to be in that community, you know, that uh, Ohana Va'a community, that, that canoe family, um, it is a, it's a lesson in what our learning ecology, what our learning ecosystem should really look like. Um, where we're very interdependent and and working, you know, hyper collaboratively um, to achieve a goal that we all really, really care about. And I think that if we could incorporate that into our classrooms and invite 
those explorations, those voyages, right? Think of school more as a as a base camp or as the as the as the hale that that the canoe sits in while it's being cared for. But then hey, we've got to send it out, right? Mm-hmm. A canoe, a canoe in the hale is not doing what the canoe is supposed to be doing, right? A canoe tied to the dock is not doing what a canoe is supposed to be doing. And a student in their desk can be being prepared for a voyage, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so how can we bring those young people out into the community? Um, Because there's so much waiting for them, right? There's so much here on Oahu and of course around the world. Um, And there's lots of ways to use technology. I I spoke earlier about those early days of Skype classroom and bringing John Francis in from New York um, virtually to Skype with those students. I think that was back in 2008 or 2009. And since then, I've, there's a lot of ways our technology is capable of opening our eyes to the world and pulling us out of our chairs. Right. And I think um, for, I always laugh when I see people using what are meant to be mobile technologies, but in the same sedentary positions that they use any other technology. You know, they're sitting down at a desk in a chair using their iPad or their mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, wow, what if we could create a platform and infrastructure that meant that this technology pulled us out into the community and into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could do that. We could figure out ways to keep our kids safe and engaged and being taught and instructed and coached and guided in all the ways that um, that we need to do it. Polynesian Voyaging Society is proving it in an extreme case. Um, I won't say we should put all kids on, on canoes and send them to Tahiti and back, but um, there's ways to do it right here on our island and in our islands and you know, a lot of a lot of young people are doing it. I've seen it around the island. They're they're doing it sometimes in school contexts, a lot of times out of school contexts, a lot of times because it's what their ohana does, it's what their family does. Um, and I think the more that we can kind of grow those little hot spots of voyaging and, and exploration, um, I think you know our our classrooms will become more purposeful and intentional and places that kids want to show up because they don't feel trapped there. They feel like, I'm, hey, I'm getting ready to go, I'm getting ready to go. There's a wonderful program based in um, the in Hakipu on Kaneohe Bay, the Kanehudamoku Voyaging Academy. Um, and uh, as everybody knows, uh, Ted Dittersmith, who inspired, uh, who wrote the book, What School Could Be, and therefore inspired this podcast, What School Could Be in Hawaii, that's one of the first places that I took him when he first came to Hawaii was a voyage across the bay um, with the students on Kanehunamoku. And it was just a, a remarkable experience. And you can just think about time built into kids' weeks and days where they can come and experience something like that. And like you say, they're unmoored from their desk and brought out into nature. It's, a, it's really, really neat. So Dan, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to dive into uh, Pacific Blue Studios. And then we'll talk about your walk around Oahu. So hey, everybody stay with us. We'll be back in just a sec. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Hey everybody, we're back. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, our seventh or sixth or seventh on the road edition. I'm losing track at this point. And we're with Dan Kinzer, who is at the very end of his long walk around the island of Oahu. Um, so Dan, for the, the first part of this uh, conversation, we talked about your bio and some of the really amazing programs that you've been involved in. And now we're going to take a step towards something that seems particularly epic, um, which is a school, if you will, that you're looking to found or you're working very actively to found called Pacific Blue Studio. So talk to us about what this project is about. Yeah, thanks, Josh. <clears throat> that, uh, 
that idea, the Pacific Blue Studios idea was really born out of some of the things we were talking about earlier. It's time uh, on the deck of Hokulea and in connection with Polynesian Voyaging Society, Planet Walk and time with Dr. John Francis and also my time at Jump Foundation and time at Punahou School in the Luke Center for Public Service. I really feel like now is a time to realign the work we're doing with young people with the context that we're living in, the count of the time, right? The, the fact that we are facing major challenges to sustainability, we're, we're facing an opportunity to really engage our young people in transformation of culture and community um, and a realignment. And I think that that's what that, that's sort of the driving cause behind Pacific Blue Studios is what does that infrastructure, what does that ecosystem look like, that learning ecology um, to support the sort of realignment with uh, realignment of learning in full context and, and a sense of whole community in place. Um, so, yeah, I, I left a position at Punahou at the end of the last school year um, to launch Pacific Blue Studios. And we right now we're thinking of it as a a seed. We're trying to understand what the sort of DNA of um, a new learning ecosystem might look like and how can we construct um, a studio around that DNA. So how, the studio is really that that first tree, almost like in Hawaii, we think of the lehua ohia lehuas. Um, they're the first trees to populate um, lava fields after the eruptions and the lava has cooled. And, and what is that sort of first seed that we could lay out um, that would offer a new vision um, uh, that is more connected um, to nature and to community and to some of these important contexts that a lot of our young people are missing out on. So we're going to get started with a group of 12 youth and their families and sort of a pilot studio to see if... Uh, it's almost like a mini um, voyaging canoe crew, um, land-based, but a little mini voyaging canoe crew to see how can we engage fully in our community and paying attention to all the relevant contexts that are here um, in our place. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, identifying sort of who's going to be a part of that first community and trying to figure out what... Um, what the DNA in that in that seed really is. So I'm I'm imagining that all of our listeners, local, national, global, who justifiably, when you say the word school, they think of school immediately brick and mortar and whatever shape it's in and however much glass it's got or rolly desks or fixed desks, all of that kind of stuff. But generally there's a conception of school. And what I'm picking up out of Pacific Blue Studios is something that's a little bit more hub and spoke. Um, that the hub is essentially a, a, a voyaging platform and that the kids are on quests and that you're going to be tapping in, if you will, to lots of resources around the hub that represent places or opportunities for learning. Am I, am I on track there? Yeah, I think you're, you're pretty close. I would, I would say that it looks from the perspective of Pacific Blue Studios, it looks like a hub and spoke model, um, from, uh, by design, what we're hoping to build is more of a networked model. So all of those at the ends of all of those spokes are these really cool places and people and organizations and community. We also want to figure out how Pacific Blue Studios facilitates relationships between those places as well. Wow. So it doesn't revolve around the studio. We don't want this, the youth's experience to, um, to just be taking a bunch of trips to different locations, but we want them to be embedded in whole community. And building the infrastructure for that um, is really one of the goals of Pacific Blue Studios. How do we make it possible for young people to move in kind of a fluid way through their community and maybe not even need that hub at the end of the day, right? I think as we, as we make this transition, we're going to need some kind of a hub because of our current conception of school and where young, young people have to go somewhere every day. There's actually so many places in our community. So we really are trying to be intentional about how do we design a networked model, a distributed model of our campus is our whole valley, is our whole district, is our whole island. Um, and that's, um, that's a, it's a little bit of a bold goal. It's been, it's hard for me to exa see exactly how that's going to happen right now. Um, but I think that it is happening. Um, Pacific Blue Studios is just a part of that. And so we almost see ourselves yeah, as that, as that network that, you know, it's just a seed that's going to be planted alongside all these other 
really great seeds that are being being nurtured and grown. So I'm, I'm struck by the thought uh, that you're, all of this is conceptualized almost within a service learning construct, right? Because we're talking about relationships and service learning, unlike community service, which is more directed at somebody, is really about empathy and about building relationships. And so it seems like the DNA of this is very much about how do I understand the whole network of my community and how do I build those relationships? So you're, you're actually doing something for the community by helping build those relationships. Yeah, that's what we, that's what we hope. And we do think that, you know, sometimes the word service, it can even get in the way of us thinking about actually we're just building whole community. Hmm. So we're really just building relationships. It's all in the service of the community. Um, but we know that people like to fight over terminologies and what different things mean. But the the reality is, is that our young people live in this full context that they're often disconnected from. And it's not about doing service at this location or at that location. It's really about how do we take care of this whole place? And some of my work in biomimicry really informs that as well. We talk about the genius of a place. That's not a, that's not a single organization or a single person. It's, it's that whole web of relationships that we're trying to learn how to operate in. And the Native Hawaiian community, this sort of concept of indigenous innovation that's being held by several groups and organizations here in Hawaii, really, really exciting because I think they're directing our attention to how do we lift up the whole community um, in the work that we're doing. And, and everything, whether you think of your work as service or community service or not, everything is in the service of stewardship and regeneration and aloha and i think that the more we can get to the more we can get to that um, the better learning ecosystem we will have created for our youth so dan it seems like that's the perfect segue to talk about your walk around the island um because um and and by the way if i've got this correct this is your last day right this is the last uh, day i'll last finish day. this afternoon you'll finish this afternoon be, you've been walking around the island for a little under two weeks right? that's correct yeah. so you talk about the genius of a place um and that's what struck me when you and i started talking about this walk and why i wanted to have you stop here at my home in kalani valley to to have a conversation with me so you're, you're walking around the island of Oahu. That's roughly about 140 miles. That's right. And so the central question for me is why? <laughs> Got to get to it. Yeah, I, I, it's a really important question that I think I've had to revisit multiple times over the course of the walk. Initially, I, I really wanted to focus my attention on the listening. We talked a little bit about that with Planet Walk and really have the opportunity to see and observe and feel the island that I call home, that I live on. Um, I wanted the opportunity to do that with my own family and a few of friends and some youth um, and other community members. Um, and so it was really this sort of listening walk, almost like a learning walk, which have become sort of popular tools uh, used in schools these days. And it was almost, oh, I'm going to do a learning walk around Oahu. <laughs> it's just a bit, bit bigger than the typical school-based ones. Um, and then the other was really about gratitude because uh, it's, a, it's a season of Thanksgiving one, but it's also the season of Makahiki here in Hawaii, um, a time of renewal and regeneration. And I wanted to be more deeply connected to the place through a sense of gratitude. And the walk allowed me to, in a way, offer a bit of a pule, a little bit of a thank you um, f to the island for its abundance and for its generosity. I think we often forget because it's so easy to get consumed in all of the conveniences that we have on the island that are brought here from off island that we have everything that we need. We have what, what we need here on the island. It's so much abundance, so much diversity, so much generosity here. Um, and I saw it all over the island in every moku, every district, um, every valley. Um, there were signs, evidence of that genius, uh, of that generosity, of that abundance. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was, you know, I really wanted to say thank you um, in, in a way that uh, was aligned with who I am, but also aligned with the place. And I really just wanted to listen to what are the questions, what are the ideas that are floating around this island? What, what different visions do people have for the future here? And, um, it turns out it just wasn't long enough. You know, I really, I'm almost ready. It was really nice to see Leahi as I, as I turned the corner on the island it's and Diamond Head, uh, Diamond Head and, and uh, realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm coming back home. Um, but I almost want to keep going. 
So I want to tap into this notion of the genius of a place. And I'm, I'm so struck by that. I'm not sure why. It's just that when I think about the genius of a place, maybe it's the work that I've been doing over the last three years here in Hawaii with Ted Dicker Smith, and we've gone to every island at every corner of every island, and we found genius everywhere. And by genius, I don't mean to paint with any broad brush and say there's non-genius over here and genius over here. What I'm talking about are just sparks of innovation, sparks of creativity, imagination, of of thinking that that looks towards leveling the playing field, of making the community a better place. So you went clockwise around Oahu. Let's just do that in our in our time here. Um, so you started at Seeks, which is a charter school here in Hawaii. You serve on the board. It's the school for examining essential questions of sustainability. So between, let's say, Seeks and all across through West Oahu and around towards Kayana Point, what did you find? What What are some examples of the genius of Oahu along the way? Yeah, wow, that's a that's a great question, and that's a big. That was a big stretch. Those first few days of the walk um, were through central Honolulu through right? central Honolulu. The most congested part. Yeah. yeah, through definitely the most congested, most developed part of the island, and it was um, it was hard physically. You know, it's a little bit hotter in town. You're walking on pavement and concrete, and there's not a lot of shade. There's not a lot of cover. Um, but the the genius was still very evident. You know, and it's sometimes it's. Uh, tucked away in, in things that we might not ordinarily recognize. I see a lot of artwork in town um, that uh, calls out a lot of Hawaiian historical figures, a lot of Hawaiian plants, a lot of Hawaiian animals, Hawaiian landscapes, um, a lot of our uh, valued kapuna and, and, and members of the community who have contributed so much to, to making Hawaii what it is. Um, and you'll see murals, you'll see graffiti, you'll see yeah, sometimes just on people's, you know, even something as simple as, as people inlaying uh, honu or sea turtles or the hay or octopus onto a gate or onto the side of their house or a wall. Um, these kinds of things, uh, they're definitely very prevalent in Kakako, but they're also, um, they exist throughout the community. I think for reasons because people want that connection to nature and to history and to this vision of Hawaii that we all hold really close to our hearts, but is sometimes hard to find as part of our as part of our day to day. It seems like um, every day these these bright spots, these places where stories are told, are everywhere. But all day long we rush past them, and it seems like what you did very consciously and intentionally was to slow yourself down. And through walking, you started to find these in places because you had slowed down because you'd see them and you had a few minutes to actually contemplate them. So part of finding the genius of a place or part of even finding the genius in all of our kids is to slow things down. 100% right. Josh, 100%. I think the, you know, the slowing things down is the most efficient way of getting where we really want to be. It seems so counterintuitive based on our training to think that slowing things down is more efficient. Um, but I found over and over again in moments where people were willing to slow down with me, um, their perspective on what they valued and on the kinds of things that they wanted to talk about would shift. Um, so all of those things exist. They're inside all of us. They're inside the land. They're inside our community. Um, they're just hard to see when we're whizzing by in our cars or we're whizzing by in our minds because we have 50 emails to respond to or a bunch of text messages we have to get to or a lot of Instagram photos to like or something like that. So as you moved out of the urban core and where you experienced a lot of the storytelling, uh, which is on almost every wall, I mean, everywhere you turn, you see people, uh, examples of people telling stories. As you moved out of the urban core and headed around on the leeward side and towards Kayana Point and turning towards the North Shore, what did you find out there? Yeah, that was a really beautiful part of the walk. It was incredibly hot. Um, the west side of the island, leeward side of the island is drier and, and hotter part of the island. And we had a couple days of kind of blue skies and sun beating down on us and ended up um, sort of relying on the generosity of some really unexpected friends. So there's, as most people here on Oahu know, we have quite a large houseless um, population and community. Um, and that, they, that community has a lot of stigma attached to it and there's different feelings about how it should be managed and this and that. And um, I don't have real clear or strong opinions about that. 
But what I did notice is I was walking around Pearl Harbor, a pool on the bike path. There's a walking and bike path, which is pretty underutilized. Um, there's a strong presence of a houseless community along that path. And as you continue out what are basically the old train tracks um, out across the Eva Flats and Capo Day. Sure, and, former. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and heading up uh, along, along the west side, along Farrington Highway, um, there are communities that dot that whole journey. And that's mostly the route that we followed and um, all along the way, um, help finding directions or finding out where I could find water or where a bathroom might be or even sharing in food uh, was an experience that was profound. And wow. um, there are also, you know, I, my experience on the, the West Lock, the other side from we're here in town, the west side of, of Pu'ulua. It's a beautiful wetlands with at least half a dozen species of endemic endangered birds um, nesting out in these wetlands in a zone that most people will never, most people on Oahu will never see um, unless you slow down and take the time to walk it. And so that generosity from unexpected places, I think it, it tells the story of that genius is in some ways on Oahu, it's a little bit sad to say, but is in some ways on life support, right? It, it, here on the island, it's it's very much there, um, but there's some amazing people who are taking care of it and stewarding it. But most of us, including myself on most days, are running around it and not even noticing the genius that, we, that, we're, living, that we're living in. And so the, the, such a gift to be able to sort of see um, a, a situation on our island like houselessness as just a group of people, a group of new friends, a new com- set of communities that I was able to connect with briefly as part of as part of my journey around the island. And of course, there are also amazing work being done in sort of social, economic, agricultural, environmental conservation and regeneration, some real sparks of genius that are that stand out to all of us and many people here on the island know know mm-hmm. about and have dedicated time and attention to. Um, and those I, I think those are sort of like the life support um, systems that are that are helping pump life into this genius of Hawaii um, so so that it can be stewarded by a lot of us but it's really those people in the community who are able to slow down I met an incredible uncle with a house um, right along the train tracks um, and he does landscaping work but he's built this um, he's built this small very small house right along the train tracks and he's brought in some of the leftover sod and grass and banana trees and tea leaves and he's taken such beautiful care of this place and he stopped for 20 minutes doing his work so that he could show it to me and my two kids. And um, he took a lot of pride and he was so appreciative of the fact that I wanted to stop and drink some water and share some water with him and, and see what he had built there. Um, and to think that, you know, that's a, that's something that is, is a problem um, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, was really interesting to have to think about a lot of yeah, a lot of thought about how we can sort of elevate this genius and expose it and, and visualize it more so that we're able to, even in our hurried lives, be able to tap into it just a little bit more. So as you came around the corner, so to speak, around kind of point and you, and you started traveling along the North Shore and along the Windward side, so what's one specific example of something along that very long coastline of the North Shore and the Windward side that really jumped out at you, something that you that you really never knew about before, or just really maybe even caught you by surprise, something that you discovered along along your walk. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the ways that our shorelines, our beaches, our um, parks that dot um, the coastline along, well, really up through, across the aisle, around the island. Um, but especially along the North Shore and along the Ko'olau, um, how utilized those are by families that claim long ties to those places, right? They may not live in the vicinity of those parks anymore, but they'll come back there for big family picnics and big barbecues. And I was walking over the over the Thanksgiving holiday um, along that North Shore section and the Ko'olau section. So hmm. um, there were a lot of people who, you know, time off work and family gatherings, but they were happening in this big sort of public arena. Uh, I remember on Thanksgiving day, um, being walking the North Shore between Haleiwa and Sunset Beach, and all along that, including in Waimea Bay, 
um, include Pupukea right next door, um, just big family gatherings who had come down to sort of spend their Thanksgiving afternoon out on the beach together, in the ocean together. And I thought, you know, this, maybe this is only happening because of the holiday, um, but it really represented, you know, I thought, oh man, our Thanksgiving is going to be kind of a bummer. I'm walking with, it's just me and my two kids, which is great, um, but everyone else is going to be off at home and it's going to, maybe it'll be nice because it'll be quiet, but it's going to be lonely. But it was the opposite of lonely. And um, it was a real kind of festive occasion and people were offering to, you're walking on Thanksgiving? Why would you do, oh, come over here. We have a bunch of food, you know, come eat with us. And that kind of just open generosity, you know, a lot of concern for my for my two kids who are just five and seven and were walking that stretch with me. Uh, and people said, oh, have they gotten enough to eat? And oh, do they need, what do they need? And what really, you know, not a superficial sense of hospitality, but just a real mm-hmm. sense of ohana and, and, and community. Um, I don't know why I was so surprised. I think because I spend so much time usually rushing around, I don't get a chance to sort of sit in those moments. Um, mm. But that was a real that was a real gift. We also saw two Hawaiian nene um, out at Kaena Point, which um, a lot of people might not know. But at one point, 50 years ago, down to 30 in the state, yep. only a handful of years ago did we see them back on Oahu. And so to have them come land next to us while we were walking through Kaena Point, to see the Hawaiian monk seals, to see the whales coming in. The albatross had just arrived, the Laison albatross that have a colony out there at Kaena Point. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things, to be able to see the stars so clearly. Wow. Uh, I th- in, in Honolulu, we have a bit of light, light pollution, but you can still see the stars at night. But it's totally different once you get behind the Vianai Mountains and all that light pollution from this, from town is blocked out. Right. And I'm thinking about, you know, we are pattern-seeking and pattern-creating creatures. And some of the most amazing and important patterns, relationships, movements in our lives are blocked out by this fast-paced world we've created for ourselves. So how can we, how can we begin to sort of see those patterns again and create those patterns in alignment um, with the natural world again. I think there's, I thought a lot about that, um, how water flows, how the stars and moon move across the sky, how these animals are migrating and moving around the island and how I was, I was doing that and mirroring that in some ways was, was really stood out to me a lot, especially on that North shore and Koala section. I'm struck by the thought in this moment, Dan, that we, we get so boxed in when we think about intelligence and we think about genius, but I mean, just intelligence even, and that we think of it in very traditional terms in terms of how you, you know, your GPA, your, your grades, your transcripts, your testing scores. Um, and occasionally we see a few people who are considered geniuses, the Einsteins who go off. But what you're, what you were picking up out on the North Shore is really sort of a community intelligence about gathering together in, in, in thanks together and that you were picking up on that. So it just, you're sort of blowing the whole notion of what, what is intelligence out of the water and saying you can find it everywhere you look, uh, if you're looking for it, which is, which is really, really cool. I love the way you put it. I think if uh, there was one thing our schools could do that that might change uh, our approach is if we started looking for not how do we measure individual intelligence or genius, but how do we actually start cultivating and attending to our collective intelligence and genius? What can we do together um, is such a more powerful question than what can you do by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think if if that can become a deeper part of what we're doing in schools um, and in classrooms, um, automatically I think we're going to see the kinds of engagement and the kinds of cool projects and the kinds of um, ethical and moral and values-based conversations that we want to see happening with our with our keiki with our young people. Uh, they're going to start to happen. They're going to start to happen. You can't live on a canoe together and not have those conversations. Mm-hmm. You can't live in whole community together and not have those conversations. So um, that sort of uh, individual approach to education, which has dominated the school system since the beginning. And even some of our most progressive movements all are oriented around personalized or individualized learning. And I'm really interested in what about team-based or community-based learning? How do we, how do we take care of our, of the whole and not just divide? Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that's a really interesting point. So Dennis, we come down to the end. Well, um, at this, this has been an extraordinary conversation and 
Um, I'm just thinking that over the last 45 minutes, I mean, over, over many episodes, I've tried to dig deep with people about what is deeper learning, but really for the last 45 minutes, we've been talking about deeper learning and, and albeit you did have to go to a, what to most people would be an extreme measure, which is walking around the island, which people often can't afford to do, or even with time, but still, um, the ways that you can do that in your own individual life, just small walks that you do around your island, your metaphorical in quotes island. Uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. So I, I wanted to finish by blending together here on this last day of your walk. And as you head off into whatever is going to happen to you and with Pacific blue and everything that you're working on, I want to tie two things together. One is a, a question I'd like to ask everybody at the end of these episodes, which is what, what could school be? And the other is that I was reading, um, a piece that was posted by the Luke center for public service, uh, on Punahou's website. Um, and in that article, which was interviewing you about service learning, um, you were talking about your daughter and you were, you were asking about your daughter and you were imagining, uh, you know, the way that you put it was imagine my daughter heading out into the world. And you, you asked a series of questions like, what do I hope for her? What gifts, values, attitudes, habits, skills, and dreams will I wish her to have? So I wanted to blend the two questions together or the, all of those questions together and just talk about what, what are those, those skills and dreams and habits and things that you wish for her and what can we do for our kids um, in the same way? No, that's a great, it's a beautiful set of questions. Um, glass of podcast and if I start crying talking about my daughter and nobody can see. Uh, but, it, you know, my daughter was with me for a week of this walk and um, seven years old and walked 60 miles um, and, wow. and seven days, um, which I was amazed that she did and could do. And she said on about the fifth or sixth day of that walk, um, she says, Daddy, I just want to stay on the walk. Uh, my daughter's in second grade um, and loves school, does outstanding in school. Um, really proud of what she's able to do and, and how she stays engaged and the things that she's learning. And she's an avid reader and she loves solving problems. She said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to school. I just want to stay on the walk. I said, why? You love school. And she says, dad, all we do is learn reading and math. And I don't even understand it. I said, well, yeah, your teacher says you're doing great. And I watch you read. You're a great reader and you do your math problems. She goes, it doesn't make it's, it. It's not like the walk. It doesn't make any sense. This is my seven-year-old daughter. And she's seven, so she's still figuring a lot of things out. But as I listened to that, I realized that her education, her very good education by most of our standards and metrics, is totally disconnected from context. It's not, she's not learning about what it means to be a family member and what it means to feed herself and what it means to take care of the land and take maybe every once in a while she gets field trips or small lessons, but it's very disconnected and divided experience that she's having. And I want a connected experience. I want my daughter and my son to feel a deep connection to this place and to the planet. I think, you know, before you can care for the whole planet, you've got to care for your family and your home and your neighborhood and your island. You know, the, the, the great idea, one of the great ideas uh, to come out of Hawaii as part of the Polynesian Voyaging Society or probably well before is that the canoe is the island is the earth, right? We have these different scales of honua that we, that we operate in. And, and this idea of connectedness and wholeness is really, really important to me. And this disconnected and divided school experience that we provide i think we have to find ways to to connect it and to integrate it and that can be done without only walking around the island i think there's a lot of ways that we can invite that kind of conversation and exploration i think it really comes down to something i struggled with on the walk but that i gave a lot of attention to is it let my kids curiosity guide this ex their exploration and their experience. I'm not providing them an experience. I'm going with them on an experience. And I think that that little shift forced me to say, when, when you have a question, I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to let you sort out the answer to that. And we're going to, we'll have conversations about what's going on in your head, not 
what I think should be going on in your head. And so it was, that was an amazing education for me to try to step outside of what I think my children should be doing um, and what I think students should be doing to saying, what are they doing? How can I go with them on that journey? And so a lot of the moves that we're doing towards entrepreneurial learning, service learning, project-based learning, deeper learning, these are all outstanding. Um, they're all steps in a direction towards a, a more whole, a more connected, integrated education. And so, yeah, I really think school can be more mobile. I think it can be more flexible. I think our students can be walking Malka to Mackay, you know, ridge to reef. They can be exploring their communities as their campus. Uh, they don't have to be so attached to seats and, and classroom times. I think that's really important. Um, and I think that we listen to them and let them guide more of their learning and stop thinking like we're not going to cover all of the important information um, because I don't think that's the way our brains actually, actually know that's not the way our brains actually work. Um, we're not just information collecting machines, right? We're, we're processing and synthesizing and question asking machines and pattern seeking and creating machines. Um, and then I think school really needs to, you know, if, if I had a title, I never really liked the title teacher or educator. I never felt like I had enough expertise to really explain part of the world to other people. Um, but I do like this term. I heard it from an architect named Trung Lee. Uh, he called himself a learning ecologist. And how do we build the ecosystems or nurture the ecosystems that support learning, um, that really support people going out into their world and developing understanding and capability? And so I like thinking of myself a little bit as like a budding learning ecologist. And if I were going to design a school, it would be on the move and it would be intentionally focused on understanding the patterns in nature and patterns in our community and culture. And how can we foster alignment and participate in those patterns to create whole community, whole, you know, a deeper sense of connection to place. On those kinds of things. And some of our schools are doing it. They're, they're on the path to doing it here in Hawaii. It's exciting to see Pacific Blue Studios just wants to help continue growing that network. You know, Dan, the tagline for my most likely to succeed in Hawaii project, if you will, and, and also the tagline that's up on our Facebook page is 100% by yesterday. And by that, I mean, um, you know, no disrespect to the 55 by 25, which has to do with college bound, but really, what I mean by 100% by, by yesterday is that, and you've helped me to define it a little bit more in this moment, is that 100% of our kids will have an opportunity to experience that kind of connected learning that you're talking about, to be a learning ecologist um, at least once, but hopefully many times over the course of their, of their lives. Um, and so it's really, really special to be able to talk to you about this today. So Dan Kinzer, who is walking around Oahu, please be safe on the last part of your journey here back to Seeks, right? Yeah, I'd like to make it home. That'd be good. Yep. And so thank you so much for being with this podcast today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Josh.